Striking Chords with Jonathan Douglas. Here, talking with actor Stephen Burkoff. Now, Stephen Burkoff, the name of this piece, uh, Shakespeare's Villains, a masterclass in evil. Mm. Um, now, somebody famous, whose name I can't remember, once said about uh, Milton's Paradise Lost that the, the problem was, or the point was, that Satan was so much more interesting than, than God. I, is that how you feel about the way villains are portrayed in literature and in Shakespeare particularly? Well, they, they, they're not. First of all, I think there's an easy comment that Satan is more interesting than God. Of course he's not. There's nothing more fascinating than the manifestations of what God can create, does create, and inspires. Um, uh, the works of God are, are manifold and amazing. And, and what the villain does is to try to undo a certain section of those works. And so, but what he does is single-minded. So he seems to be more interesting because his focus is so limited. Um, and in that limitation, there is something kind of magnificent, stark, and strange, and weird. But if you look at villains through history, um, their main drive is an obsession about something they feel has been denied them, and something which they feel is unjustly denied. And, and therefore, they have to compensate this drive makes them interesting to a public that is largely uh, kind of fed uh, by the idea that the world is um, their oyster and that there's so many things you can do in life and, and they become a bit overwhelmed by the sheer variety and possibility what they can do, what their ambition is when you're a child, what shall I do? And it seems that they're suffocating by the nature of society and the world and civilization. The world was much simpler in earlier days. You know, a caveman just had to go out, hunt down the food, and uh, jump on his woman, and that's it. It was, uh, we could make a fire, and everything was ruled by necessity. But now, since there's no necessity, you don't have to go out and collect the firewood, and you don't have to kind of hunt the animal and skin it, and cook it, and uh, leap on your woman so frequently. <coughs> Um, life has become uh, diversified and most mostly life today is about for most people what kind of computer you should have whereas for the villain he brings life back to its basics you know there is one basic form in life how to deal with this how to get what I want what is this singular ambition how to rid myself of this being how to kill how to rob one one particular thing and so that makes them attractive, but otherwise, uh, you know, because the villain is a kind of represents the human aspiration for simplicity, for just a directness. And uh, I think that way he becomes attractive. Also, he functions as a, a kind of an appendix that we all have in us, the seed of villainy. Everybody is born with that kind of obsessive desire, and greed. It's part of the child the need, in fact, to survive. And the need to survive means that villainy has no interpretation and has no meaning because in the child, survival, even killing, is necessary to get your food. And in animals, particularly, some awful instincts that in some animals 
uh, the siblings are even destroyed inside the womb of certain animals in order for to know their survival. And as birds, if some birds are in the nest, can be eaten by their older brothers or sisters because they feel they want, you know, they're, they're hungry and need to survive. As you grow older, you become civilized. This is where human values and religion comes in. But what the villain does is take us back to those primitive instincts, which we all have, uh, of killing your brother, of killing your sibling in order to get on. And this, uh, he removes then, well, it's not just civilization that gives us a sense of values. I think it's innate in human beings that we develop these sense of values as we grow older. But the villain takes us back to our primitive selves, so it becomes very attractive. This um, obsessive desire, this, this primitive quality that you're talking about, these are things that all the villains that you're portraying in this particular show have in common. Yes, yes they have. They, well, all villains have something in common like that. Uh, they, they, their range is not wide, but it's dynamic within that range. So the, the villains I portray, I, I start off with Iago, who is merely jealous of love that Othello has for Desdemona. But well, this love is so overwhelming to be loved, it's so wonderful to be a kind of object of a woman's passion and desire. Now, if a man, another man doesn't have that Iago, because nobody can love a villain, because a villain doesn't give out love. There's one thing he's incapable of doing, he's incapable of loving, because his obsession takes over everything. And women only love a villain out of some sense of uh, admiration, but there is not real, true, delicate, sensitive, beautiful love. So Iago represents all human beings denied love. And when you're denied love, there's such a jealousy grows up in you, such a, uh, a terrible ball of hatred, um, that he feels he has to destroy Othello and Desdemona. It's very simple. Macbeth also is denied love. He feels he's denied love by society that hasn't rewarded him for his efforts of being king. So his wife also denied love. She substitutes love for power. This is what a lot of villains do. They can't have love. So she encourages her husband, Macbeth, to kill and take life in order to achieve it. And then the third villain I do, um, I don't know, yes, Rich, Richard III, his villainy is about, again, the crown. But the crown seems to be a substitute for love. It's, if you cannot have love, if you cannot win it, earn it, what you can do is demand it. So what the villain does, he demands love through fear.